If you are currently worried about inflation, raise your hand. Okay? According to several media outlets, inflation is at a 40-year high in America. Right now, everything costs more. McDonald's costs more. MacBook Pros costs more. Maseratis cost more. Do you remember when gas was $2 a gallon? That was almost less than a year ago. This morning, gas was $4.26 a gallon. It's doubled in price in a year. Many of us wonder, is rent going to be too expensive in 12 months? Is all my hard-earned money that I worked so hard to save going to be worth nothing in five years? Are my retirement accounts going to be pretty much worthless in 25 years? When things like inflation hit us and cause us to be anxious, it's a way of God testing us. Which brings us to John 6, 1 to 15. In this particular story, Jesus is testing the disciples to see if they trust him to provide for their needs. Maybe God's testing you this morning. How have you responded to that test? Have you responded with anxiety, joylessness, working harder? Or have you responded with joy and peace, trusting God to provide? Well, the story unfolds with three sections, the test of Jesus, the miracle of Jesus, and the identity of Jesus. First is the test of Jesus. Look with me at John 6, verses 1 and 2. John writes, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Word is spreading very rapidly that Jesus is a walking, talking, miracle worker and vending machine. So people are swarming to him like kids swarm to candy. There's a massive crowd following him around because of his supernatural power. Verse 3 and following. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That's an interesting detail that we'll come back to later. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip... Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus looks around and sees this vast throng of humanity coming to him. They're in the middle of nowhere, according to the parallel account in Luke. They're in a desolate place, and there's no food for anyone. And so Jesus looks to Philip and says, Philip, see all these masses? Who's going to feed these people? So he's testing Philip. Well, how does Philip score on the test? Not very well. Look at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now that sum is a vast sum. That's probably thirty-five dollars to $50,000. And he's saying, Jesus, even if we had 50 grand, that would not be enough to feed this mass of humanity. What are we going to do, Jesus? Philip's reply stresses the hopelessness of the situation. According to Philip, 
This problem is simply too hard for Jesus to manage. Clearly, Philip does not trust Jesus, even though he's already seen Jesus turn 300 gallons of water into wine. And he just watched Jesus heal a lame man a day or two before this. But Philip is failing the test. He does not trust Jesus to provide. Well, how does Andrew score on the test? Not much better. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy who, here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, these five barley loaves were probably the size of a Twinkie. They were small. And barley loaves, that was the food of the poor, the outcasts, the down and outs. And the two fish were probably more like sardines or some kind of fish paste, which sounds disgusting, like maybe like a fish cream cheese used to make the barley loaves palatable because they weren't very good. But Andrew's response is he's simply saying, all we have to feed this mass throng of humanity are five loaves and two fish, which is hardly even enough for this boy. So both Philip and Andrew are very doubtful that Jesus has the power or the desire to provide food for all these people. Philip and Andrew both failed the test. Night was falling over the harbor of Bristol, England, and the children in the orphanage, founded by George Mueller and his wife, were getting ready for bed. George was working in his study when his wife arrived with alarming news. She said, George, there's not enough milk to feed all these girls in the morning. George laid aside his pen. And this wasn't the first time that George Mueller had experienced a significant trial where there was lack of supplies. The Muellers had taken in 30 girls in 1836, and now they had 100 girls living with them in an orphanage that they had founded, and they were trying to provide food for all these young mouths. George rose from his desk and reached for his wife's hand, and he, he said to his wife, Mary, let's pray. And two orphanage employees joined them in prayer, and right after they got done praying, there was a knock at the door. Someone showed up and gave them an envelope, and Mary took it upstairs and said, George, quick, open the envelope. What's in it? Let's see how God's going to provide. And sure enough, the envelope was open, and there was plenty of money to buy milk for everyone. And a few minutes later, two more envelopes showed up, also with pledges of money to provide for this orphanage. This immediate and abundant response to prayer was normal for the Muellers. They had learned over the years to trust God to provide even when it seemed impossible. God tested them, and they passed the test with flying colors. God tested Philip and Andrew, and they both failed the test. Is God testing you this morning? If so, how are you doing on that test. God will often test us. Maybe you have financial needs. Maybe you have health needs. Maybe you have relational needs. Maybe your kids have significant health needs or relational needs or academic needs. Maybe you have significant school needs. And maybe these needs seem massive. It seems like there's no human way 
that we can provide for ourselves. It seems impossible for these needs to be met. When God tests you, how do you usually respond? Grumbling, complaining, anxiety. I think God wants us to respond like Mueller responded. With trust, prayer, and confidence that God will supply our needs. And when we don't trust Jesus, we are basically saying either that Jesus isn't God, or he's not a very powerful God, or he's not a very nice God, which is why anxiety is such a big deal in the Bible. When you and I do not trust God to provide our basic needs, we are saying things with our actions and attitudes that are untrue of God. Fortunately, God has mercy on those who fail his tests repeatedly, which is all of us, isn't it? We've all failed this test at least once in our lives, many times in our lives. Now, this brings us to the second point. First is the test of Jesus, and second is the miracle of Jesus. Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. This was a massive crowd. According to most scholars, there was 5,000 men. There were probably 15 to 20,000 people in this particular audience. Now, last Tuesday, I took two of my boys to Seattle to the Climate Pledge Arena to watch a concert. It was sold out. There were 17,000 screaming fans there to watch a particular artist. I won't mention his name because we're in church. But his name starts with a J. His last name starts with an M. You can figure out the rest. Anyways, that's a lot of people. To put it in perspective, that you're all thinking right now, who is that? John Mayer. It was John Mayer. Okay, it was John Mayer. <laughs> That's a lot of people. To put it in perspective, the Spokane Arena holds 13,000 people. Now, just imagine, even if you had 50 grand, the logistics of feeding 20,000 people with five loaves and two little fish. This was an impossible problem that required a divine solution, a miracle. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus supernaturally took five small loaves and two fish, and he created almost ex nihilo out of nothing, enough food to feed at least 15 to 20,000 people. This was a stupendous act of power. This was, make no mistake, a miracle. Now, over the years, many have tried to explain this miracle away. Um, R.C. Sproul is a famous pastor and theologian who died recently, and he says in his biography that when he was a small child, he was told that this really was an ethical miracle. Here's what happened, according to his pastor in Pittsburgh as a child. 
His pastor said, here's what really happened. There were the haves and there were the have-nots. And along comes this little boy who was a have-not. He only had five loaves and two fish. He was poor. But out of his poverty, he decided to be generous. And so he decides to give his food to the crowd. Jesus notices this, highlights this act of generosity, and this act of generosity inspires all the haves. So all the haves pull out their food, and they share with all the have-nots, making this really an ethical miracle, not a supernatural miracle, where God created bread out of nothing. Is that what happened? No. Others say what happened here was several days before this huge crowd uh, met in this place out in the, in the wilderness, Jesus and his, his company found a cave, and they hid in the cave several baskets full, a lot, um, of fish and bread. And then at just the right time, Jesus led them to that very place. And he stood up and prayed. And his disciples formed this assembly line. And they began passing bread uh, and loaves and fish to Jesus. And he clandestinely pulled them out of his sleeves and provided for the crowd. Is that what happened? No. There's several problems with these interpretations of these events. First, there's no evidence anywhere that this was an ethical miracle or there were caves anywhere. Second of all, the crowd knew it was a miracle. Afterwards, they all wanted to make him king because they were so impressed by his supernatural power. And third, this, this miracle is in all four of the Gospels. Two of them were written by eyewitnesses. They were actually there and they saw all these events unfold before their very eyes. So this was a miracle, at least according to the eyewitnesses and the crowd. And again, this is the only miracle besides the resurrection found in all four Gospels. Why? What makes this miracle unique? Why is this miracle in all four of the Gospels? Because this miracle is key to understanding the identity of Jesus. Which leads us to the last point. So first is the test of Jesus, second the miracle of Jesus, and third is the identity of Jesus. What does this miracle tell us about the identity of Jesus? Several things. Like what? This miracle tells us that Jesus is a generous provider. Jesus miraculously provides food for 10 to 20,000 people. Then verse 11 says, they ate as much as they wanted. Verse 12 says, they had eaten their fill. Verse 13 says, there were 12 baskets left over. Remember back to John 2, when Jesus turns 300 gallons of water into wine. That was way too much wine for that party. This is too much bread. Why does Jesus always make way too much stuff? Because he's not stingy. He loves to give stuff away generously and freely and bountifully. Jesus is not stingy. God is not stingy. He loves to bless his people. Now, how do you know if you think that God is stingy or not stingy? Simple test. Are you stingy? We treat others the way we think God has treated us. And if God has been exceedingly generous towards us, 
We're going to open up our pocketbooks, pull out our debit cards, and give our money away freely because God has given to us freely. And we're going to do it joyfully, which raises the question, when was the last time you gave to someone in need? When was the last time you gave a generous gift to a ministry or an organization? If it's been a while, maybe it's because you're stingy. And if that's the case, it's because you think God is stingy. But God is not stingy. He's generous. And you and I can never, ever, ever outgive God. In the Gospels, Jesus says, Given it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I'm not at all an advocate of the prosperity gospel, but often as Christians, as conservative evangelicals, we ignore those texts. This is the only place where God says, test me in the Bible. Test God. Give and see what he's going to do. And by the way, this church is very generous, and we're very thankful that you guys give so lavishly to GCF. But if we think God is stingy, we're going to be stingy. If we think God is generous, we're going to be generous. And Jesus is a very generous provider. Not only is Jesus a generous provider, in addition, Jesus is a divine provider. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's a reference to a promise by Moses that one would come like Moses to save the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people saw the sign. They were amazed and they thought, man, this guy can heal the sick. He can provide food. He'd be a fantastic ruler. Let's make him king. But they had no clue what he was really about. He did not come to establish a geopolitical kingdom. He came to be a suffering servant who would die on the cross for our sins. And so Jesus very quickly exits himself from the situation. But the point here in verse 14 is that John says, when the people saw the sign he had done, this was a sign or a miracle pointing to the deity of Jesus. This is the fourth sign of the Gospel of John telling us that Jesus is divine. And if he is divine, he has the power to provide for our needs. This morning I got an email. And the email, there was a, a, a teeny tiny dot, maybe the size of maybe two pencil dots. And it said, uh, hold, go outside at night, hold the phone like this up at the night sky, and look at those two dots that are about the size of a pencil dot. Within those two dots in the night sky, there are 50,000 galaxies. Is this turned on? Maybe you guys didn't hear that. Okay. 50,000 galaxies in the night sky in a teeny tiny pen dot. Jesus spoke and all those came into existence out of nothing. Does he have the power to provide for your needs? Yes, he does. When we doubt him, again, we are saying not nice things about him. He's not powerful or he's not good. 
But this story proves that he's God, and if he's God, he has the power to provide for our needs. Well, Dave, then why doesn't he give me what I want when I want it? Because God gives us what we need, not what we think we need. God is a good and gracious father, and if you don't need that new Maserati, he's not gonna give it to you. He gives us what we need to glorify him. And often the things we want aren't the things that we need. But God is very, very gracious to give us the things that he knows that we need. He's a generous provider. He's a divine provider. In addition, he is a promised provider. Go back to verse 4 with me. Verse 4, John says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. We must remember that, that John was highly selective in what he chose to include in his narratives. Why in the world did John include that little detail about the Passover? Why is that important? Why did he include that detail in the context of this story of Jesus providing bread for at least 5,000 men plus women and children? Why? Why did he do that? Well, we must understand what the Passover was. The Passover was kind of like Christmas or Easter for the Jews. It was their biggest celebration. It was a celebration of God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian slavery 1,500 years before Christ. The Passover was a huge deal that celebrated the freedom that God brought to the Israelites. Now, notice the parallels between all the events surrounding Passover and all the events in John 6. Israel celebrates the Passover, Exodus 12. The great crowds with Jesus were celebrating the Passover in John 6. Israel passes through the Red Sea on dry land, Exodus 14. Jesus, the true Israel of God, walks on water as if it is dry land, next week's sermon text. Israel wanders through the desert, Exodus 15. All these Israelites in John 6 are wandering around the desert with Jesus. Again, in Luke, Luke calls this a desolate place or a wilderness. Israel's tested with hunger. Exodus 16. Jesus tests his disciples with hunger. John 6. Israel receives miraculous bread from heaven, the manna. Exodus 16. Jesus provides miraculous bread. John 6. Israel eventually enters the promised land. Joshua, the book of Joshua. Jesus ushers all of his people into the eternal promised land, heaven. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, mentions the Passover connection with Christ's miracle to remind his audience that all the things surrounding the Passover in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the sum and substance of the Scriptures. He delivers God's people from sin and slavery and death. Jesus is the Passover lamb who assuaged the wrath of Almighty God on the cross. And Jesus is the one who leads us through the desert of life into the eternal promised land. That entire story in Exodus points to Jesus. And the Jews should have recognized this. Jesus also sustains us with spiritual bread from heaven, which brings us to the last 
subject. He's a generous provider. He's a divine provider. He's a promise provider. And he's also a spiritual provider. The day after Jesus feeds 5,000, he speaks these words to the Jewish leaders in John 6, 32 to 35. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, these amazing words, these bold and audacious words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the Old Testament, God supernaturally provides manna from heaven, bread from heaven, to feed hundreds of thousands of Israelites in the desert. And that bread from heaven sustained them and kept them from starvation. And part of the Passover celebration was celebrating God's provision. And Christ is saying, I am the bread from heaven. I am the one sent by God the Father to sustain not just your stomachs, but your souls. He's saying, you all Israelites need to feast on me. At this point, I think some of them, some of them probably thought he was crazy for making this incredible claim. This is a claim to divinity. He's saying that your souls must feast on me and me alone. He is the bread of life who is willing and able to quench the hunger of our souls. Yes, food is important. Yes, water is important. And yes, God provides both for his people. But far more important than bread for our stomachs is bread for our souls. And Jesus provides it. Yet so often, we look to other things to satisfy us. Other forms of bread Listen to Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Isaiah writes this. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. In other words, it's free. What I'm offering you, God says, is free. It does not cost any money. You can't earn it. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Isaiah is saying, you, Israel, Spend so much time and effort and energy drinking from broken cisterns that can hold no water. The things that you're looking to will never, ever, ever satisfy your soul. Sex, money, achievements, education, advanced degrees, fit bodies, none of that will satisfy the hunger of your soul. It may for a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months. But none of those things are designed to satisfy our soul's hunger. It's only the bread of life, Jesus, that satisfies our soul's deepest longings. And if you and I really believe that, I mean really believe what we believe, 
We'll spend a lot more time looking to Jesus, trusting Jesus, and pursuing Jesus, recognizing that relationship with him is what satisfies the hunger of our souls. He boldly says, I am the bread of life. Feast on me. Feast on me. So in the story, we see the test of Jesus We see the miracle of Jesus, and we see the identity of Jesus. Now, I imagine, as you're out here listening to me, there's several responses to this story, several groups of people probably listening to this particular sermon. So, some of you wonder, is Jesus really God? Yes. This story proves he's God because... He takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds thousands of people by performing a miracle. He has power over creation. And if he is God, you must turn away from your sins and trust him. Some of you are worried about material provision. This story is for you as well. The story reminds us that Jesus is generous. He loves to give good things to his people. He gives us all the things we need, and he does so generously and lavishly. Well, maybe you have all your needs met this morning. That's probably most of you in here. You have enough food, you have enough water, you have a place to sleep, you have a car to drive, you have health insurance. But I wonder is your soul full, or is it empty, hungry? looking to all kinds of things besides Jesus to satisfy it. This story reminds us that only Jesus, the bread of life, has the power, has the ability to quench the hunger of our soul. Nothing else will. It's only in Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and cultivating our relationship with him through the ordinary means of grace, reading the Bible, praying, fellowship, coming to church. It's through those things, not through money and achievements and power, that our souls are satisfied. If you're looking at other things this morning, this text challenges us to repent of our idolatry and once again look to Jesus who satisfies. Let's pray together.